The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Into the Impossible, a podcast about how we imagine and how what we imagine shapes what we do. From the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, at UC San Diego. Today, we're going to be speaking with Carl Wyman, professor of physics and at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. In addition to doing research on atomic physics, he studies science education. And so our associate director, Brian Keating, sat down to talk with him about creativity in science and how one might teach imagination. We hope you enjoy it. Just for the audio, I always like to ask people, if you were, uh, somebody comes up to you and says, I've got good news for you and bad news, which do you want to hear first? Mm -hmm. The good news or the bad news? Are are you asking? I'm asking you, yes. Oh, uh, I'm not sure I have any bad news for you. No, no, no. I'm saying if somebody tells you, I have good news for you and bad news for you, which do you want to hear first? I want to hear the bad news. You want to hear the bad news. Okay. I've kind of gotten 50-50. I had Freeman Dyson on last last month, and he said he wants to hear the good news because that'll uh, soften the blow of any bad news that would come later. (laughs) Well, I mean, partly this actually is is governed by my work in education. Oh, really? Yeah, where it turns out negative feedback is much more useful for learning, contributes much more to learning than positive feedback. Right, so, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, to the extent that <laughs> negative feedback. <laughs> You're going to get the course correct. Yeah. Actually, so it just dovetails, dovetails nicely into what I, uh, the question I was dying to ask you yesterday, but you're uh, thronged by so many uh, interesting students. I think that was the thing I liked, that the students were asking your questions about pedagogy um, and your talk yesterday about, you know, how do you really turn non-experts into experts. Uh, so I'm one of my hobbies in my copious amounts of spare time is I'm working on my uh, certified flight instructor rating. So I've got a commercial pilot's license. I've got all sorts of experience. But one thing my original flight instructor told me 25 years ago is never stop learning because once you stop learning, you get complacent. Once you get complacent, bad things happen. And so I started uh, to this process of getting my government-issued, FAA-issued flight instructor license. And to do that, you have to uh, study a great deal of human psychology. And I thought it was interesting. I think it's probably the only, you know, I can't imagine the IRS has, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that, that the auditors need to know about or, or something like that. But it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, I've been a professor for 14 years uh, and no one ever taught me how to teach. And more than that, nobody ever, ever taught me, you know, these basic principles, hierarchical structure of needs, whether you agree with it or not. I'm not I would be interested to hear, first of all, your take on is that a legitimate thing in the eyes of, you know, in social sciences, they seem to really cling to it. And the fact that the FAA, you know, seems to want to prevent people from dying. And so they feel like this is an important thing. You know, they have the pyramid of, of needs right in their handbook for flight instructors. Um Alongside, you know, how to land an airplane on a, you know, single engine that only is a two-engine airplane. So, what, what are your thoughts on, on on the kind of the classical modalities of pedagogy? And is is there a reason that we should or should not be teaching physics instructors how to be professors? Yeah, on day I mean, one. I mean, it's very clear now that yeah, if if you want them to be good teachers, there's a there's a level of of expertise in that in you know, to be a good teacher, 
you have to have the the expertise just like you do to be a flight instructor, <laughs> and that means that you have to know about the the research on basic learning and connects with some some basic cognitive psychology aspects, and you've got to know about how to implement those things properly in the classroom for the different ranges of students you have. And, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, and certainly in the previous thousand years, which universities are running, yeah. one didn't have that research to show. So, you know, it was kind of, there wasn't anything clearly to learn. It was kind of right. an individual art form. <laughs> and the, the trouble is we haven't, historically, we haven't gotten past that. Yeah. Because we're just in that transition region. So I, I you know, like the a pretty good analogy is to think about medicine. Mm -hmm. So we're at the place medicine was in about the mid to late 1800s. Where, <laughs> Leeches and where, phrenology. Yeah, well, yeah, before then, you know, it was kind of every crazy idea that somebody came along and <laughs> declared themselves to be a doctor. Right. And, you know, that was all it took. And then, but then you had this kind of scientific medicine coming along and, and that, but you still had the people practicing cookies, you know, their own individual idiosyncratic stuff at the time you had real signs saying, no, there's better ways to do this. So my, you know, soundbite on this is that, you know, the, the standard university professor is is currently still practicing the pedagogical equivalent of bloodletting <laughs> when we there are antibiotics out That's there right. they know about. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a problem of education. I mean, uh, the, thing, the first university was in, you know, eight, 1088. And back then, I always point out, although I don't do it to my students, when the students were unhappy with the professors, the students would go on strike and the professors wouldn't get paid. Right. <laughs> Thankfully, that barbaric <laughs> process has been replaced by tenure. Well, they, no, <laughs> they us. charge the students up front. That's right. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> we charge them for the wonderful education to come. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I feel like just having learned a little bit, and I never encountered, I'd heard of that from my social scientific friends, but, but I never really encountered, well, you know, a student needs to feel, you know, say sense of security and physical safety and all those things. And we can assume to the, for the most part, a lot of that's in place, but then, you know, a sense of purpose and meaning and progress. And, and, and you touch upon this in your talk. Um, but I, you know, what I took away from your talk is this, is this, is this concept, which, you know, I believe is, is attributed not to Malcolm Gladwell, though I think he made it famous as 10,000 hour rule, yeah. which actually applies to pilots as well. I mean, a master flight instructor has 10,000 hours of flight time. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not an accident. I mean, yeah, Gladwell was really doing, he was talking about the work of Anders Eric, Anders, who's, that's right. who's done all the pioneering research in this and he, but he was playing a little fast. I mean, a lot of it's actually pretty close to the research, but then he wanders away mm -hmm. at times and starts putting in his own stuff, right. which the only problem is he's not very good at differentiating between right. what's, what's actually research and, and what's Gladwell extrapolation. <laughs> That's which, right. which, so Erickson has actually just written a popular book, which... You know, you don't have to read. Well, it's not reading between the lines. It's right. Really good at it. It's you to to correct a bunch of things. The misconception. That's right. To undo the yeah, yeah, unring the bell. This, the Gladwell yeah, bell. Yeah, it's called peak. Uh, something about peak. Oh right. Yeah, you reference on your yeah, in your talk. Yeah. Yes, that's and right. So, I'm meaning to but, get that. But anyway, it, I mean, it's certainly ten thousand. This 
arbitrary number, 10,000 is kind of iffy, but mm -hmm. it's certainly several thousand. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 I, and I can certainly see that, you know, just keep on, you know, beating this metaphor to death. But with that, with flight instruction, you know, you, you really can't encounter the different weather systems and altitude systems and air spaces around big cities and small towns right, right. unless you do accumulate a lot of hours. But in the in the teaching of physics, you know, I remember for myself. But, but oh, sorry. Let go me on. break yeah. in to make a yeah. correction. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, important point there. Um, you talk about you can't encounter all those things, but that makes a very important point about those. Those hours have to be spent doing the right things. Mm -hmm. So if you went to always the same place with the same weather right. condition, you could do 10,000 hours and you're exactly. not an expert That's, pilot. That, you know what? You, you have to be Testing, practicing on all those different expanding conditions. Expanding them. Yes. Yeah, and, and so that's You're absolutely right. Some people say, you know. And that applies to all of these different situations. Exactly. Some people say, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can get 100 hours of flying experience. You can fly the same flight 100 times. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, and in the, in, and that was kind of also dovetailed with the, with the statement that you mean, you also need feedback. It's not just enough to have accumulation. But I do feel like there was an element, you know, at least in my education, and, and, I, and I conversed with some of the colleagues sitting around me yesterday. Now you're talking about your flight education? Oh, no, sorry. No, my physics education. Yeah. Well, whereas, you know, when I, I, I made it an analogy to, you know, like the Stephen Jay Gould, you know, punctuated equilibrium where you really kind of go from state to state in a hopping mechanism. Like when I learned what a Fourier transform is, then I started to see everything in terms of Fourier transforms. It wasn't like, well, I put in, you know, one hour's worth of studying on, on trigonometry and then another hour, you know, it was all of a sudden now I could see things in a whole new light and that opens up vast different areas. So there, there seems to be two different evolutionary paths, one where you do get, get big jumps and, and mental breakthroughs. And, you know, but I think a lot of it has to be done, you know, on your own, like as well as getting feedback. I mean, the ratio is probably hard to determine how much feedback. To, uh, but and, and you made the good point that we shouldn't waste our time, you know, teaching rote stuff, you know, that they can memorize or at least encounter before class. But uh, I wonder, you know, throughout that, I couldn't stop thinking about this notion of creativity. I mean, whether. Yeah. yeah. So, go, go ahead. Okay. So. So I don't want to leave creativity. Yeah. I've given a lot of thought to that. I do want to go back to your thoughts of, of great breakthroughs. Yeah, the lead. So, so this is something cognitive psychologists have studied a fair amount, and I wondered about myself. But so what their research has shown, and they and they get this actually best by looking at brain activity. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and what they see is that it it actually isn't the it isn't truly. Uh, you know, struggle, 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 and then some great leap. Mm. Uh, what it is, is it's a struggle, it's a develop, 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 and then suddenly it becomes apparent to mm. you. But, the, but your brain processing has still been going on to, to reach that point, and, you, and it suddenly, you know, you, it, it's kind of like you suddenly open the door, but the, the, the stuff behind that door, you were actually had to have been think you know you all that thinking about was actually prepping was wiring the brain in the right way ah, okay. and mm -hmm. you you sort of completed the last link, link if, to as act. it were so so it uh, and you know I I think it's important to keep in that that in mind because it it really says no it's not sort of oh I'll just wait around right. for the great <laughs> right. you know it really they come oh, there 
your brain is actually right. <laughs> turning, it's away, turning. Or, or it has to be turning. Yeah, I see this with my kids so, too. You know, uh, see, but you you see, I see sort of equal amounts of of linear. Well, they have to practice piano, but then all of a sudden they're like, wow, they're really good at uh, arithmetic. And well, they didn't spend extra time on earth. You know, it's just they yeah. they make these cognitive kind of. And yeah. it would be great if we could tap into that you know seven year old mind every now and then and the, the yeah, connectivity. But, but you just have to realize that. I mean, and that sort of supports the the. You know, you get people can get frustrated thinking, oh, I'm not really making progress, but right. you actually are. And when you have a great, great good, you should you should recognize, oh, that's rewarding all that effort that I right. thought was frustrating. Right. It's see, like, see, it's not really frustrating. It's not luck, right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, it's a preparation. So, and, and I mean, but that is a problem when students are first learning when they ha- haven't had experience of really learning something that's hard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they've been given just simple things to do. Then, they can very easily get discouraged because they have no idea, you know, kind of how the process works, what's right. the payoff. They don't see so, the perspective from yeah. the, from the but, end you of know, it. Mm-hmm. Once they've done it a few times, but right. anyway, so that's an important thing to deal with new college students, particularly when sort of come from not very good high school. Right. So. And, and, you know, you made this point yesterday that like, you know, there's only, there's probably some saturation point as to how many physicists a society like ours needs, you know, but, but of course, you know, our job is education. And then the question that people have is, you know, I mean, I always heard, I think it's attributed to, is it a rabbi who said, you know, something like, you know, if you're, you're paid to do research as a professor, and if you're a gentleman or a gentlewoman, you, you also put some effort into teaching. And, and then I, you know, I had, I had a conversation with my friends and I was like, well, you know, we're basically like small business people. Those of us that run labs, we have payroll, we have travel, we have, uh, you know, accounting. Then we have all the supervision stuff. We have committee things. And then, and I'm like, we're like CEOs of a, you know, very, very, very small fortune, one, you know, one million company. And then he said, yeah, but they don't, you know, they don't have Tim Cook teaching 40 hours a week or whatever. And it's the question of, you know, prioritization. And, and I heard this morning just walking, I saw my colleagues down the hall feverishly debating some of the points you made yesterday. And, it was just interesting to me because, you know, as a parent now, I have five kids. My wife and I have five kids as of a couple weeks ago. <laughs> we had twins. And, you know, I think about, like, if I spend, like, an hour on learning about parenting, you know, I feel like I'm super dad or whatever. You know, my wife is super mom. But, you know, I think it's very important that you give these talks because, you know, just spending an hour thinking about these things that we really, I mean, literally never taught me how to teach. And, and I don't know if it's different at Stanford or elsewhere. No. But, um, <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> um, you know, but I think it's it's so important and and the way they to get it right it would be great to kind of find a way to scale the kind of, i mean you've given your presentation elsewhere i know but and you have your book about this this very topic but um you know then the question comes up you know what is our mission truly is it to teach the undergraduates is it to teach graduate students to become us and then well are we just you know you know making you know clones of ourselves and so that was the, the question of creativity um you know like as a physicist i mean a lot of what we do and you, and you asked this question of all of us yesterday like what are the core elements of what you do and, and how you characterize what you do? And I had sitting next to me a theoretical biophysicist. I had a particle physicist on the other side. And we were, you know, we have very different things. I'm an experimental cosmologist and we have just very different toolkits. But the one thing that's hard, and we talk a lot about in the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, is can you teach creativity? And how do you do it? And I remember interviewing an artist who, uh, he was a, a playwright and, and, and an actor, and he played Pablo Picasso in one of the plays, a one-man show. It's unbelievable. Herbert Seguenza is his name. And he did a phenomenal job. And I asked him, like, well, what did Pablo Picasso think about the craft of, of, of you know, being an artist? And then how could you apply it to being an actor? And his thing was, like, 
like, well, Pablo Picasso didn't start out with cubism. I mean, he started off as a classical artist and replicated the masters. And I was thinking, well, I'm curious as to what you think. I mean, do you think it would be valuable to go over? You talked about De Broglie yesterday. I mean, do you think there's a value in the historical, you know, teaching the the, the evidentiary, you know, final correct path of physics, but basically just repeating derivations? Or I mean, how is this notion of creativity? Can you teach it? I mean, that's basically my question. Yes. Yeah, so. So, so I, I'm not going to talk about creativity in the arts and so yeah, on, sure. but I've thought a lot about creativity in science, and I've talked with people, I've talked with people, studied mm-hmm. this, and, and, you know, and I, I can, you know, this is one of the few places I claim that Nobel might be some mm-hmm. measure of, of, of uh, confidence mm-hmm. in this area. <laughs> um, and what I... Uh, would argue is that creative insights is it's pretty simple. It's basically where people are looking at some situation or question or problem and simply find a, a way of looking at it that's different than everybody else has been looking at it and realize that, that there's some other information or some other approach which is relevant to thinking about this and, and that way of doing it Mathematical calculation, or new ways to to understand how this describes, you know, some physical phenomena they hadn't realized before. So it's really this idea of finding a different way to look at it. That's, I think, in in every case I can think of, it it it's not bringing in something completely new. It's bringing, it's realizing that things that people already knew but didn't really didn't understand how could apply in this situation Mm -hmm. and so that means you sort of have to be uh well grounded in the discipline like Picasso really had to know how to paint how to produce images Mm -hmm. with paint in that in a very real way and you know I get emails almost daily from people who feel they're awfully creative and not bound by all that <laughs> background nonsense of physicists and so you know they can create infinite energy they can explain right. everything faster than and, light travel yeah, yeah. and and uh, <laughs> where it's just nonsense mm-hmm. and so you know that's not creativity yeah <laughs> so uh yeah and you know in our in my own work i'll, I'll just give one example yeah. and both both condensation really was very clearly looking at this problem, people trying to solve this problem for a long time and recognizing that the the bottleneck, the real bottleneck they had to solve was not the bottleneck that they had been working on. And that and that if you recognized the real bottleneck was all these really cold atoms trying to get three of them together to make a molecule. And that was the process you had to suppress if you're gonna make them things cold and dense enough, okay? Mm-hmm. And that led to a completely different experimental approach. But all it was was saying, oh, this problem's more important than the other mm-hmm. problems. <laughs> so, but you, you know, had to have the wisdom to That's to, not to very perspective. brilliant, mm-hmm. but it was a, it, you needed to know about how atoms behaved at really cold temperatures and understand that all these troubles they had originated from that process. Uh-huh. And so, so if you step back to think about this from the point of view of education, what I would argue is the standard educational approach we use in science is 
it's not ineffective in teaching creativity. It's anti-effective right. in teaching creativity. And the reason I say that is that, you know, if you think about really in a normal course, students learn, even a well-taught course, students learn all these things and they're given these tests, they're graded on, where the fundamental measure is always, are you able to produce the one answer that right. the instructor wants to see. Exactly. And so that's that's completely the opposite <laughs> of being able to think of ways to look at things or solve problems that nobody else has done that way before. <laughs> right. And so it's really squashing, you know, you're penalized for creativity up through right. your Until entire you start, school, finish. formal schooling. That's right. Okay. I always say when people ask what's graduate school like, I say it's definitely not like a harder version of undergraduate because yeah. an undergraduate, you may not be able to get the right answer in the homework, but somebody can, you know, somebody who's able yeah. to get, yeah. but you might not even know the question. And you mentioned this yesterday. Yeah. There might not even be a well-formed question, let alone an answer. And so how do you deal with that uh, that discomfort. Well, that's there. after you've passed all your graduate courses. <laughs> yeah, that's before, right. before that, no, you have to get the one right answer. And the qual, yeah, yeah. the bane of most qual, graduate yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to go through this big hurdle that says, no, you can get the answer that all the family want to see, and that that's qualifies right. you to then finally go out now and, you can do and do things where there isn't an answer. Right. What a stupid system, right? <laughs> and of course, I mean, for much of our educations, we're, we're always, you know, we're thrown in with the, like, medical doctors and, you yeah. know, the one thing I don't want is my doctor to, you know, take out the scalpel. So I'm going to do something really creative, <laughs> you know, so, and it has a purpose, but, but you know, but the purpose as you say, is an, it's probably anti-effective because it was really set up, I think Ken Robinson or somebody made this point, that it was set up to train, like, people to be useful in British industry in the 1800s that's and, and, and that's even building upon the Bologna University model from a thousand years before and and so it's just it's just really sad you know because i think and 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 i know we're short on time but i just want to finish up with i mean there's always this notion and you know i i i haven't seen that it's more pronounced than my you know dozens of nobel laureates whatever but i have never seen somebody say well you know i'm really really smart and 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 you know here's 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 proof of i'm a professor at a top university whatever um and so that means i can intuit all these things that you know my social science or or even my english you know in the English department, you know, have to take some training to learn how to do, or even my kids' high school teachers have to get some training to know how to do. I think if we could crack that, you know, it's kind of the, is it bottom up or we really focus on the students and flipping the classrooms and going workbooks and all those wonderful things. Those definitely work. I've tried it one way. I've tried it the other way. Um, But I I feel like we need to make this breakthrough of the educators. We need to, they need to have a little bit more humility, even our colleagues in physics, that just because you're brilliant, I see this with these projects. Well, I'm trying to be, but but it's the same notion. When I'm running an experiment, yeah, you know, and, and I've run, I've worked for people, and I've run experiments myself. And the, the notion is always, well, I'm super smart, and I could be doing anything I want, and and you know, I've I've chosen to be an academician, um, but you know, obviously running a management, and I'm like, there are books written by Fortune 500 CEO, you know, like on how to be a manager, and yeah. so why not like take advantage? No one I know does that. We, I've, you know, no one's gone to business schools to learn how to how do you run a medium size corporation i think it's i don't know do you think it's an ego issue or uh so you know i think it's no it's a culture issue i mean first i don't i know enough that people go to business schools that that's not going to be the right thing but there are certainly things that one can learn i mean i actually (laughs) 
read books on organization and organizational innovation that were really pretty useful both are running my oh, really? research okay, group but mm -hmm. also in thinking about guiding changes in teaching so mm -hmm. there's lots to be there, learned there, there there is expertise there but you know you also can't spend your life going out learning things so right. there's a real balance of efficiency yes um, but you know I, I, I will say I mean, I'll just point to the teaching things where I've looked at a lot. It doesn't take any more time to teach well mm -hmm. uh, than it does to do old traditional stuff. And in fact, new faculty spend, we've looked at this, they spend on their first teaching, spend enormous amounts of time, yeah. much of it ill-spent. Yeah. And so... You know, and, and we find it takes a f several tens of hours for people to kind of, if they haven't been exposed to this, to be trained to be pretty effective. Mm -hmm. And then from then on, it, it doesn't take any more time. And that's a huge and amount of sometimes, leverage. Sometimes it takes less time. And so if it was, if there was, the culture was just set up recognizing, no, nah, there's some expertise you need to make sure your new faculty have, mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to set up, you know, training programs to make sure that that's done in a kind of most time-efficient way for everybody, if people and departments um, start thoughts, start thinking about, let's mm -hmm. be more efficient, let's take advantage of the fact that it, it's really not necessary for every new faculty or every faculty member to reinvent the course that's right. been taught for the last 40 years, <laughs> right. uh, you know, yeah. and, and spend all that time preparing. Uh, and But that's so, you know, built into the culture right. that People but you made the point that until made, the uh, until the faculties you know recognize that they have to do it and have some metric and maybe some carrot and stick right some yeah, reward mechanism that, that's right and just an, yeah I mean you, right now there's there's only a stick against doing it yeah. and so you know that's it that's a shift in the culture so as that happens then I think actually people will teach a lot better and they'll spend less time on it yeah. and I got no problems with yeah. that. So, <laughs> That's uh, great. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. I know you have a huge, uh, a very yeah. packed schedule today. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Wyman. Okay. It's been great oh. having you here at UCSD. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three,